Good morning. All right, for those of you who sit up close, good job, because I always feel like there's these gaps on the front when there's room, like you guys are scared of me. I promise I don't bite, you can come up close, all right? Uh, we are gonna look at 1 John chapter four today. Pardon my silly joke. 1 John chapter four, verse one through six. Uh, I'm gonna have my friend Josh Smith come up and join me. Where's my guy? Come on up, Josh. Everybody welcome Josh with me. So in a minute, we're gonna have a little bit of fun, uh, but it might be, might be a tough juxtaposition because I did wanna make sure I started our time in the Word by just praying for Israel and the war taking place there. So even as Josh comes to have a little fun with us here in a moment, can we pray first? And then we'll, we're gonna turn our attention to that, all right? So let's pray together. And as we pray, uh, just a reminder, don't just listen to me pray, like join me in prayer in your spirit um, for God to move and work and bring peace and protection, all right? So let's pray. Father, we come to you as sovereign over the whole universe. We believe that, we trust it. And we pray now, Father, for the war taking place in Israel. Uh, and not just that, but saber rattling from China towards Taiwan and, and Russia and Ukraine. Father, there's, there's great strife in the world. And you are the one we turn to when that takes place. We pray that you would bring peace where there's war. We pray that you bring justice. And we know that your justice is both retributive, you judge wickedness, you uh, penalize wickedness, but also remunerative, you lift up and restore those who are victims. And so we pray, Lord, just specifically for the nation of Israel now, we ask that you would give their leaders great wisdom. We pray that you would protect those who are in harm's way, particularly those who have been taken hostage. We do pray your justice against the wickedness and evil of Hamas. We ask that you bring them under judgment. We pray that you protect Palestinian lives. We ask in all this that you would bring and exalt the name of Jesus to, your, to those through whom you sent the Savior of the world, the nation of Israel, who have not in large recognized him as Messiah. We pray that you bring salvation. For Palestinians, we pray salvation. We pray that Jesus would be exalted and lifted up. We pray for wisdom for our leaders nationally and how they lead us in our foreign policy and our engagement. Would you give them great wisdom and guide them? We, Thank you, too, that you say you guide the feet of kings and the hands of kings and the minds of kings when they don't even know you're doing it. So we pray that you would do just that. We ask for deliverance in this situation. We pray your great mercy would prevail. We pray that you bring an end to harm and violence and bloodshed quickly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, so how many of you remember, come on, Josh, yeah, yeah, grab that mic there for me if you would. Thank you. How many of you remember the like Pepsi challenge taste test from like back in the 80s if you were old like me? Yes? Okay, awesome. Fantastic. How many of you like me when you show up in a, um, in a restaurant and they only have Pepsi products, you're like, water will do just fine. <laughs> okay, so here's what we're gonna do. My guy Josh, Josh, uh, question for you. Do you drink soft drinks? You can talk into the mic. Yes. <laughs> they can't hear you if you don't do that. Yes, you do. Uh, by the way, Josh leads our Upwards ministry. If you haven't uh, been a part of our awesome basketball Upwards ministry for kids, he's the guy. So thank him for leading that because we love that and it's a great opportunity. All right. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna see how much discernment Josh has. Do you prefer one of these? Definitely Coke guy. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, the Lord's drink, devil's drink, okay? <laughs> All right, it's gonna fit well, don't even worry. All right, we're gonna pour this, and then Josh, your only job is to see if you can taste the difference. I'm gonna try and make them even, and in a moment, I'm gonna have you close your eyes, and then I'm gonna mix these up. Or am I? Does that look level? All right, close enough that he's not gonna be able to tell, right? All right, so, 
close your eyes for me. We're gonna mix these up. We're gonna see which one the congregation will know. You will not know. It's a princess bride situation. <laughs> All right, you can open them up, taste them, and tell me which one is which. And if you get them right, we're gonna cheer you. If you get them wrong, we are gonna boo you off the stage. And, and you mentioned Princess Bride, so it's a money <laughs> yeah, now. That's exactly right. Never get involved in a land war in Asia, they say. <laughs> you can say it into the mic so we can hear you again. Coca-Cola, Pepsi. Did he get him right? He got him right. All right, good job. Thank you, brother. Yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. So... The text we're gonna look at today is really all about discernment, but it's about a different kind of discernment. So it's a great, it's kind of a fun discernment. If you can tell the difference between Coke and Pepsi, it might help you in a restaurant. It might just be kind of fun as a party game, right? So that's a fun kind of discernment. But there's a kind of discernment that's way more important than just that kind of discernment. And it's what the scriptures are gonna call having spiritual discernment. To be able to discern what is right and good and true and beautiful and what isn't the source of different ideas and beliefs and where they come from and where they don't come from. And so as we look at 1 John today, that's exactly what John wants to help us with. He wants to help us be spiritually discerning people. So do we want to be spiritually discerning people? I trust we do, and so that's what John wants to help us with today. Now, I don't know for sure, in, in my circles, in like church circles, pastoral circles, there's a lot of conversation these days around deconstruction. How many of that, that idea or that term is familiar to you? Okay, so a decent portion. My guess is like on the job site, you know, deconstruction is not the first subject, right? When you're on the road crew, right? Or maybe in the office, it's not the first subject you're always talking about. But when we talk about deconstruction, at least in academic and pastoral circles, uh, one, we talk about it, I think, a little bit like it's the first time it's ever happened, but people have been what we call deconstructing faith since the since the origins of faith, right? And what we mean essentially is kind of taking apart our belief system and examining it piece by piece, which, by the way, is a good way to begin to own your faith. So deconstruction, there's a good version of it, and there's a bad version of it, right? Good version of it is just saying, I'm gonna honestly look at the faith that perhaps I was raised in, and I'm gonna examine it and see, does this represent who God truly is, or does it not? And there's a version of that that we would encourage. If you're skeptical and examining, we want you to do that. Deconstruction is really helpful in that sense. There's versions of deconstruction that are less helpful. They're maybe guided by some different desires or experiences that lead us in a direction that may not be all that helpful. And so what, in terms of becoming spiritually discerning, not just for those of you who aren't questioning your faith per se, but you're, you recognize, man, the world comes at us fast these days. You know, and in terms of recognizing, man, this seems like a new idea or an old idea repackaged in a new way, and I don't know how to examine that rightly, I wanna offer you some help today. But if you're also a person who's right now in that place of deconstructing your faith and kind of examining different pieces of it, there's some spiritual discernment tools here for you as well to help you. And so I'm gonna try to offer those to you as we go, as ways that are, if you're doing that process, ways that are helpful to do it and ways that are less than helpful. And maybe that's a friend of yours, maybe it's not you, but a friend that you might be able to help. So I'm just gonna warn you now, we are content heavy today, okay? We're gonna, we're gonna lift some rocks that may feel a little heavier, all right? But, you know, you just raise your hand and be like, repeat that if you need me. I'm just kidding, don't do that. I'm not gonna be able to do that. But we are going to lift some rocks that may be a little bigger today. Stick with me. If I lose you at any point, uh, just you know, jump back in. We'll try to really anchor it in ways that make it helpful. So we're gonna look at those things. Now, let me give you the first thing. If you find a friend or you are in that place of examining your faith, 
I'll give you two things just right out of the bat before we even get into the text that is one gonna be really helpful. One, I wanna encourage you, you need to hold up the sort of faith of your parents or the faith in which you were raised if you're examining it. You need to not just hold it up to the light of reason and logic or to the world's sense of what is true and untrue. You need to hold it up to the light of Christ. Now, there is truly, I mean, no surprise coming from a Christian worldview, there is a light that he provides that makes sense of everything. And if you're just holding things up to your own reason or logic, you're gonna find that's not a sufficient tool to be able to figure out what is true and what is not. Chris, we okay with this? All right, cool, I'll keep going and you just tell me if I need to switch. All right, and then the second thing I'll say is this, is that you can't deconstruct forever. You have to deconstruct in order to rebuild, in order to take what is good and right and helpful and build a worldview and build a belief system C.S. Lewis once said, more speaking about a, a, a rationalistic worldview that denied uh, that there was such a thing as truth, he said, to say I see through everything is to see nothing. Because if you're constantly just going, well, I, there is no truth, I see through that, I see through that, I see through that, essentially you're saying I, I, there's nothing to see. And you want to see something, right? And so as you're deconstructing, I just wanna help you recognize, you don't wanna deconstruct forever, that's a period in time sort of a thing, and then you wanna move to a place where you go, okay, I am solidly convicted that these things are true, and now I will build upon those. That's, that's the path to a life of joy and, and fullness and meaning, and I wanna help you get there. The scriptures wanna help you get there. We don't wanna just leave you forever pulling things apart never rebuilding anything that will actually help you make decisions and lead you forward into relationships and into what is meaningful in, in the mind and in the heart. So does that make sense? All right, so we wanna help you get there. All right, so let's just ask this question. Here's the guiding question of the text today. How do we become spiritually discerning people? How do we become spiritually discerning people? Let's read those six verses together. Beginning in John chapter four, verse one, we find these words. Beloved, he always refers to them as just people he loves. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Just a quick pause there. Recognize that where we just came from, he just was just really harping on in chapter three, love one another, love one another, love one another. It's almost as if he's saying, I want you to love one another, but I want you to remember that love and discernment are not opposites, they go hand in hand, right? So, lest you think just love, just love, just love, and act as if there's no sort of testing of spirits that needs to be done, discerning that needs to be done to love well. Let me just rid you of that notion. You, you need to do that, right? So he says, test every spirit, because false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse two, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. A very simple idea, very simple statement. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What a rich statement. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So that's our text for today. Like I said, the prevailing question is how do we become spiritually discerning? So let's just take this piece by piece. We're really just gonna move from verse one down through verse six. We're gonna see a handful of things about how we can grow 
as spiritually discerning people. So here's number one. The first way to become more spiritually discerning is to live with a supernatural worldview. Now, I thought long and hard about whether to use the word live with or embrace or have, and I was trying to just come up with just the right word. I think live is the best word I've got for you because I don't just mean that you need to accept mentally that there are spiritual realities in the world, that, that what you see in the physical realm is not all there is. I hope you recognize as you read through the Bible, it is thoroughly uh, ensconced in a supernatural worldview. It speaks to spiritual powers that are both good and that are bad. Have you read your Bible and do you see that? So there's just no reading the scriptures and, and having a worldview that goes, you know, this material world is all there is. It's a thoroughly supernatural book in terms of its expectations of what, what is actually happening and are there real spiritual realities? Are you actually a spiritual being? Do you have a spirit that when your body dies will actually depart and be with the Lord or be separated from the Lord? I mean, the Bible is very clearly a supernatural uh, book with a spiritual worldview. And as you think about that, uh, the thing that the, we're after here is not just to acknowledge that reality, but to live with the expectation that spiritual realities are taking place all around you all the time, and to recognize what's at work. Now, in this passage, John isn't thinking so much about the kind of spiritual realities of um, physical attack from the devil or of temptation from the devil, although those things happen. He is thinking more about ideas and beliefs and where they come from. And so he's talking about saying, there are spiritual realities behind every belief, behind every idea. And we need to recognize, do they come from the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, or do they come from demonic spirits, the spirit of the Antichrist? Now remember, he referred to the Antichrist in a previous passage. He just means the Antichrist will be this end times figure who essentially encapsulates rebellion against God. Everything he's about is in opposition to God. He wants to harm the church, the people of God. He wants to lie to the church. He wants to lead people astray and deceive them. And so he's just referring back to that, which he talked about in an earlier passage, okay? And so he says, essentially, there are spiritual realities behind every belief, behind every idea. They either draw down from God himself and derive from the headwaters of what is true about him, or they come from the enemy. They come from the evil one. He doesn't paint an in-between category, which is really telling, right? He doesn't go, yep, some ideas are just in-between. They're in the middle, right? He says, no, everything derives from some belief about who God is or who he isn't. So it probably makes sense that if I say we need to be spiritually discerning, you can't be spiritually discerning unless you believe in a spiritual reality. Does that make sense? So it's important that we embrace that and that we then live in light of it, acknowledging it, recognize it, that ideas don't just produce our actions. Beliefs produce actions, we all know that. I act according to what I believe, right? But it's not just that beliefs produce those actions, it's that there's a spiritual entity or force behind those beliefs that then produce actions and, and then operate for good or evil in the world. Now, that would all be, that would be well and good and helpful to us if every idea that came down, whoever was giving that idea, said, I am, here's where my ideas come from. Here's the source of those ideas. I am for God, I am against God, right? If, if people, and some people are, they say, yeah, I, I oppose God, and they will tell you this idea absolutely is in opposition to him because I don't believe he exists or whatever it may be. If everybody were clear about that, that would be important enough to understand that there are spiritual realities behind it. But 
the end of verse one tells us something even further. When he gives us the why, he says, test the spirits. Why? Because many false prophets have gone into the world. It's not just that there are spiritual realities behind the ideas and beliefs. It's that some people will claim they represent God who truly don't. That they will falsely say, yes, I represent God. And that's the situation John is dealing with. He's saying those people, if you remember, who were part of you and they went out from you, they're denying things about God. They are false prophets. And so he's saying, it's not just that you need spiritual discernment because there are ideas rooted in some, uh, in, in different realities spiritually, but that some people, in order to get you to believe their ideas, will tell you that they love God, that they represent God, that they flow from God, that they are the result of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, that's not true. They actually don't represent God. So that kind of, do you see why spiritual discernment is so crucial, yes? Because it's not just those who acknowledge they oppose God, it's those who tell you they don't oppose God, but actually are. So it gets trickier, right? So spiritual discernment's really necessary. Now, here, let me tell you one more thing. Because just everything I've said so far, you might think, okay, well, being spiritually discerning almost means like you've got to embrace this very like kind of side-eyed gaze at everybody. Where are you coming from? What, what, are, you trying to, what are you trying to tell me? Almost like a hypercritical nature. And I wanna tell you, a spiritually discerning person is not a hypercritical person. It's actually a person who is more able to love than anyone else. And here's why. Because when we understand that there's spiritual realities behind every worldview, belief, idea brought to us, and we need to discern that, Ephesians chapter six, verse 12, tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against cosmic powers, dark spiritual forces. So here's what that means. And then Paul goes on in that to tell us, hey, you want some more spiritual discernment tools? By the way, take up truth. Take up righteousness that is yours in Christ. Take up faith so that when the enemy fires at you, it falls and fizzles dead because you're so full of trust in God. Fill, you know, fill up your feet, like really get on mission for God. And as you do, as your feet are shod with the gospel of peace, as you go forward in the work of God, you will find that you are discerning. And so he gives us these other tools there, not to preach that text now. I'm tempted to just go preach that text, right? But he's saying, you are able to love your enemy and your neighbor in a way that no one else can because you recognize the battle is not really with the person in front of you. The battle is not really, even though they may oppose you and in, a, in terms of what you're trying to bring into the world, truth or falsehood, you are in opposition to one another. We recognize that person's not the enemy. That person is representing a, an enemy behind and above them, and we want them to become an object of grace and mercy and salvation. And so there's a loving way even in which we bring our opposition. Isn't that amazing that God can do that? Spiritual discernment doesn't make us hypercritical. It fills us with love. If you find yourself becoming hypercritical, that's not the same as discernment. Can we all agree on that? Be discerning, not hypercritical. All right, so that's the first thing. Now let me just give a little nugget here for those of you, if you find yourself in that place of deconstruction, or your friend is, here's what I'll say to you. You need, in terms of like accepting a supernatural worldview, I think you will find that the longer you go in deconstruction, if you're putting in that deconstruction, that examination of faith, if you're really utilizing a materialistic worldview, like a belief that reason and logic alone will be enough to help you examine all the pieces, you're gonna find that that's gonna come up short. There are things in the world that cannot be explained by reason and logic alone. 
There are supernatural and spiritual realities. So my encouragement to you is have that tool in your tool belt as you're doing that deconstructing, as you're examining. If you would just start from the accepting of supernatural realities exist, that's gonna be more helpful to you in your process of examination than if you cut that off right at the, at the start of your examination. If you just go, nope, that doesn't exist, only reason, only logic, only physical, you're gonna come up short in your ability to examine well. Does, does that make sense? All right, so I hope that helps you. I just wanna encourage you, don't cut that off right at the beginning. All right, number two spiritual discernment tool that we get in this text is that we should learn how to draw a line from every belief back to Jesus. So. If we wanna become spiritually discerning, we need to learn how to draw a line from whatever idea might come at us, to us, and say, what does that say about, or how does that relate to who Jesus has revealed himself to be? The centrality of Christ and his person as the most pivotal and key tool for becoming spiritually discerning. Now, here's why I say that. Look at what he says in chapter two, in verse two and verse three. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And then he says the opposite. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, and you can fill in, has come in the flesh, because that's what he said in the first part of the verse. Does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. All right, so the question we have to ask ourselves here as we come to the text, let's do a little, let's really mine the text here, okay? Is, is John saying that the, really the only tool we need, the only litmus test for spiritual discernment is the doctrine of the incarnation. He's essentially saying, my opponents are telling you that Jesus Christ was not truly God and truly man, that they were pur uh, purporting some doctrinal error, which was essentially probably something along the lines of, Jesus had, you know, appeared to have a body, but it wasn't a real body. Or the Son of God, the, the second person of the triune God was spirit and indwelled Jesus the human for a while, but then right before the cross left. Some version of that. By the way, almost every early heresy of the church in the first, second, and third centuries involved a denial of something true about Jesus. Almost every single one of them, whether it was docetism or Gnosticism or modalism or... Uh, uh, Arianism, like I don't expect you to know what all those are, but every single one of them essentially says something false about Jesus. It's very telling that when people go, want to go in a direction that opposes God, they very quickly start remaking Jesus into something he never was, or denying something that he absolutely was. And so, while I believe that here, what John is basically giving us is the litmus test that, that applies to his situation, here are these people, they're denying the incarnation, that Jesus is fully God and fully human. I don't think he's telling us that's the only litmus test for becoming spiritually discerning. I think it's very important. But think about what else we have. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse three, when he's giving a litmus test for spiritual discernment, whether something is from God or not, he doesn't say it's the incarnation that is the litmus test. He says it's no one can say in the flesh, Jesus is Lord. So it becomes the lordship of Jesus, which of course relates to him being divine, but it's more than that, and it's something a little different than that. In this book itself, do you remember that what John has been saying is, well, you wanna be discerning, you wanna have confidence that you're in Christ? There's really three things. It's believe the truth about Jesus, right? We remember that, which is exactly what we're talking about here. 
and he says, love one another and do what is right. Those are the three kind of tools for discernment he gives for how you can have confidence that you actually are relating to God rightly. So I don't think here he means to point out that this is the only litmus test you'll ever need, but a lot of doctrines do flow from the incarnation. You can't believe the right thing about human nature without believing Jesus is fully God and fully man. You can't believe the right thing about creation without believing Jesus is fully God and fully man. You can't believe the right thing about atonement and the cross without believing Jesus is fully God and fully man. So it is certainly a crucial, central doctrine. But here's what I think we are to learn from this text then in terms of becoming spiritually discerning. We are to learn how to draw a line from any idea and say, does this say something about Christ? And if it does, is it true? Make him the center of our discerning, uh, of our discerning process. So you cannot be spiritually discerning. If there's any false idea about Jesus or in any way an idea that disregards Jesus and his authority, that idea is not from the Holy Spirit. That's as plain as I can say that. Does everybody follow that? Does it make much of Jesus? Does it make, does it declare this is who he is as the church throughout history has declared who he is? Always go back. Now, I know that there will be some ideas and beliefs. You're not sure how to draw this direct line to Jesus, and that's okay. Some will be harder to do. But where you can, always do. And recognize, oh, if this comes up short in that way, then it's not from the Holy Spirit. That's gonna help you become spiritually discerning. Now, let me speak to, again, that deconstructing if you're in that place of skepticism. The number one thing that you hear again and again is the reason someone comes to a place where they are deconstructing their faith. And I don't know if this is true of you or not, or your friend, is just a disillusionment with the church like the hypocrisy of the church. The church says one thing and does another. And by the way, we do that. That happens, let us own that, all right? And where that's the case, our response should be repentance, not defensiveness. But recognize too, let me say, if you're, if you're in that place of deconstruction, let me say too, it's not hypocritical for someone to fail to live out their beliefs perfectly. That's not hypocritical. In fact, that's, that's part and parcel to our beliefs. We know we're going to fail. We know we're not going to live up to the standard and we fall on the mercy of Jesus. That's the whole point, is that we need him to rescue us, sanctify us, change us. But if you find yourself hurt by the church and therefore disillusioned towards faith, I just wanna encourage you, give you this tool in your tool belt. Don't look at people first, look at Jesus first. Go to him first and ask, is he everything he claims he is? Has he failed in any way? Is his death anything less than satisfactory and perfect? Is the evidence for the resurrection there? It is. I mean, go back to him first. Before you dismiss Christian faith and pull it apart because you're disillusioned with people who claim it and then don't live it out very well, start first with Jesus himself. Does that help? Does that make sense? I wanna encourage you in that way. That, that's gonna help you a lot more. And then, by the way, then you can become really helpful to people who claim faith and then, and then fail to live it out very well because you can have a prophetic voice, you can, you know, you can speak into the church and go, hey, we, we've got to be not hypocritical. We've got to live in a way that demonstrates what we say we believe. You then have that, a, a really powerful voice to bring to bear. So I, I wanna encourage you in that. All right, let's go to our third thing. And here comes that really rich promise in verse four, okay? We've got to learn, if we're gonna be spiritually discerning, to rest in the strength of God and to resist fear to rest in the strength of God and to resist fear. You can't be spiritually discerning if you're being led by fear. Because 
When you are full of fear, you're, quite often it's because you're trusting in your own strength. So if you find, when you encounter a, a, a worldview, an idea, and you recognize it's, it's not from the Holy Spirit, it is not a God-honoring idea, and you find this tightness in your chest and this fear and this worry, I wanna take you back to verse four. <laughs> because it's so interesting that John doesn't say, Man, this is so scary. After talking about the spirit of the Antichrist and people in opposition to God, what's his very next thing? Read verse four again, look at it. Look how powerful this is. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is what, church? Greater than he who is in the world. He's saying Jesus is stronger than the devil, don't freak out. When you encounter that idea, you don't need to get that tightness in your chest. When your kid is deconstructing their faith, you don't need to freak out and worry and be in fear. That fear is probably coming from a place of believing that you have to accomplish it, you have to do it, you have to overcome. And he's saying, I have overcome. I've overcome. You rest in me. That doesn't mean you do nothing, it doesn't mean you don't instruct, it doesn't mean you don't think sharply and deeply but you do it in a way that is not striving in your own strength, but resting in the strength of God who has overcome. Can I tell you a few things about the beginning of this verse that are just awesome? Number one, I know, let's geek out for a second here, okay? The term overcome is in the perfect tense in Greek, and do you know what that means? It means it's an event that happened in the past that still has implications in the present and will have implications into the future. So when he says, you have overcome, you would expect him to say, you need to overcome. The Antichrist and his spirit are perpetuating all these terrible ideas and, and the spirit of God is trying to bring the truth and you need to overcome. Oh my goodness, you need to overcome. And he says, that's not what he says. He says, you have overcome. Perfect tense. Because you have believed in Jesus and the spirit of God lives in you, you've already, already overcome the evil one. You are still overcoming him and you will continue overcome him. The gospel is the good news, not of working for our salvation or our sanctification. It's the good news that the strength of Jesus is so strong that he brought us to faith and he'll keep us in faith. And you've got to begin there. If you're gonna be spiritually discerning, you can't go back on the gospel into your own strength in order to live this discernment out or become discerning. You have to become discerning in the same way the gospel saved you. You become discerning through grace by faith and trust in God and deep rest in him. Praise God. It's amazing. It's amazing. And so he says, you've overcome. You've overcome. Why? Not because you believed in your strength, in your smartness, in your integrity, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He has caused you to overcome. Praise him. Rest in him. Don't give in to fear. Now, if you're deconstructing, if that's where you are, let me come in again with another tool for you. Hopefully it helps. The other thing that you hear a lot when folks are, are again, taking faith apart and examining it is that there is this, not just disillusionment, maybe with the hypocrisy of the church, but also this sense of um, almost, I, I have in me these desires to live a certain way, and if I believe in Jesus, I can't live that way. And what I would say to you is, just ask the question whether your motive 
in deconstructing is that you just want to do what you want to do or you actually want to find the truth. And do you see how those lead you two different directions? If you just want to live how you want to live, if you find within yourself certain desires that you just want to be able to fulfill and you recognize that Jesus kind of stands in the way of those, just be honest about that. Because what you're really doing is you're saying, I, I want to exalt myself. I don't want to exalt God. I don't want to exalt Jesus. Now, I know I'm being a little harsh there, but just, get, I mean, there's no sense kind of just beating around the bush about it, right? Just be honest about what you're actually doing. And just, I don't know the answer, but when you put your heart up, you know, to the light of Christ, I'll just ask you, are you really just wanting to do what you want to do? Or are you actually trying to get at some fundamental truth about the universe and God himself? Those are two very different things. And so if you find that it's really more about, I kinda want to live this way, you're not really deconstructing faith. What you're doing is just doing what all humanity has done, is just wanting to be in rebellion against God. And the only remedy for that is actually not a close examination that can be helpful, but at the end of the day, that examination's gonna lead right where you want it to lead. So my encouragement to you is be honest about that and recognize that you're, what you really need to do, even as you're examining, is to say, God, help me, because I recognize I, I kind of more just want to go my way here. My heart is doing that. What do we just sing? Bind my wandering heart to thee. Do you remember singing that? You recognize we all have wandering hearts. That's what we have. And we pray, bind it, bind it back to you. I'm not imagining that. We did sing that, right, George? All right, good. Fantastic. Y'all were looking at me like, what? And I was like, I think we just sang that. Y'all don't know, but while we're singing, I'm trying to worship, but I'm also, my sermon's going through my head. So sometimes I miss some stuff. All right, let's, let's finish up here. Five, verse five and six, we need to get to them. So then the next thing to become spiritually discerning then is to take note of who praises a belief or who praises an idea. Look at verse five. They are from the world, meaning his opponents. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. Now, remember that in John, the world is the, is the sphere of operation where uh, it's opposed to God. So that's for John, anytime he refers to the world, he's talking about a, a, a place of rebellion against God. That's what he's talking about. But he also says, like John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. He loved the people in that sphere of rebellion. So what did he do? He, he sent his son into it so that he could save people, so that all who would believe in him would have eternal life, right? Yeah, he, may, he doesn't mince words in saying, yeah, the, the world is in opposition to me. So when John then here says, they are from the world, these, these people bringing these ideas, these worldly philosophies, they are in opposition to God. And so he says one of the things that happens as a result of that, when they speak, the rest of the world applauds them listens, gives ear to them, and goes, ah, oh, we love that, we love that. So here's a tool for spiritual discernment. If you bring forth an idea and the world applauds, that might be cause for concern, right? If the world loves the way you run your business, that might be cause for concern. If you bring forth ideas about gender and sexuality or whatever the issue is and the world applauds, that's cause for concern. Now there are three reasons the world might applaud an idea. Let me tell you what they are, okay? The first is common grace. 
So let me make sure I clarify this. This does, I am not saying that everything the world applauds is evil, because there's lots of people in the world that would say love and kindness are really good things. Yes? Absolutely. And we would agree. And you know what that is? That's common grace. That's God putting his image in every single person in such a way that through his mercy and grace and kindness, we can all recognize some things that derive from him and applaud them. There are times where the world applauds things that God does love. And so you can't just say everything the world applauds automatically, automatically, it's out, okay? The second reason the world might applaud is because the gospel's on the move and God is on the move. And there are times where people in the world, in that sphere of rebellion against God, would begin to resonate, like, a, like the tuning fork goes off in the heart. And they begin to hear truth, true things, and they go, ooh, and they like it, and they listen to it, and that's because God is on the move to redeem people for himself. That's a second reason that the world might actually applaud something that you bring forth. The third reason the world might applaud is because you're off base and bringing something that is not true about God, and therefore then the world loves it because they are in opposition to God and you are stating something that does not glorify or exalt him. And so friends, if you find yourself embracing an idea and the world applauds the embrace of that idea, take caution, take caution. By the way, when the church applauds, that's a good thing. When you believe something and hold to it and the church, the people of God go yes, but again, not a perfect test, right? Sometimes large portions of the church have applauded things that were absolutely heinous, like in the founding of our country in slavery. Large swaths of the church justified slavery in direct opposition to the word of God, in direct ignoring of the word of God. We were culpable for that. We did that. Our, our forebears did that. And so when I, when I say that, I'm not saying this is, the, this is the once for all only test, who applauds? I'm saying it is a helpful thing that you need to pay attention to, yes? All right, so last one. Oh, uh, that, here's another tool if you're deconstructing or you have a friend that is. Um, when you're taking the pieces apart and examining it, I will just encourage you to recognize like it is good to recognize all of us are motivated by some kind of an attaboy or girl. I mean, there's, there's somebody we would love to get a, a pat on the back from. And so just recognize that if, and again, it's another kind of be honest about this thing. If what you're really looking for is for, the, is for the kind of the society at large to affirm you, if that's what you're really truly wanting, you, you need to recognize that that's what you're after. I mean, people who claim faith in Jesus all the time really are just, I mean, look, it's, it's harder to stand in opposition to the world than it is to embrace the world. It just is. And so if you're looking for that ease, if you're looking for that like, I, I just, I don't want to be thought of as weird or out there or I don't wanna be pushed aside for the promotion, uh, I don't wanna be dismissed from my job because that will happen uh, based upon my work environment. I mean, all that kind of stuff happens, yes? But just recognize if you're really, I mean, just be honest with yourself, I'm, if I'm pulling it apart because what I really want is to have an easier time in the world or because I just want the world to pat me on the back because that feels good and it doesn't feel good to be pushed aside or rejected or neglected. It doesn't, it feels terrible. Nobody likes that feeling, but you need to recognize that if that's what you're looking for, you should be honest that that's what you're looking for, right? I'm, I'm actually seeking the applause of the world, which again, according to the scriptures, is a pretty dangerous approach to be going 
towards. And then the last thing, and we can be brief here because we, we talk about this one all the time, but man, I hope you never get tired of me repeating it, is to be spiritually discerning, you always have to go back to the word of God. Always go back to the word of God. Look at verse six. He says something very interesting here. He says, we are from God, John meaning himself, like him and his, his people. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know, or this is how we know, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, whether it's coming from the Holy Spirit or whether it's not. Now listen, it'd be nice if we could say like John, you listen to me, you're on God's team. You listen to the other person, you're not on God's team, right? That's not the application I want you to draw from this text. John is operating from a unique place. He has the authority of being an apostle of God, tapped on the shoulder by God to write the very words of God in the scriptures. So when we talk about the apostolic authority in the church, we're talking about that authority given to the first apostles, John, Peter, James, and the, then the communication of that faith down through the generations written in the word of God, the canon of scripture. And so what John is saying here is like, hey, if you listen to me, you're listening to God. If you listen to them, you're not listening to God. Well, I can't say that, and you can't say that. What we can say is the words John wrote and the other apostles wrote are where we find the transmission of true faith in Jesus and the truth about who God is. So friends, I've said it before, I'll say it again, go back to the word of God again and again. Wake up in the morning and drink from the well that is the word of God. Cover yourself in the water of the word. Let it purify you, let it refine you. Love and enjoy it as the way in which you meet the God of heaven, the creator of the universe. You meet with him and meditate upon his word and memorize his word and chew on his word and let it be your thought at night when your head is on the pillow. Think about it, ponder it, discuss it, pray it as you move through your day. Be saturated in the word of God. There's no shortcut to discernment around the word of God, right? There's no bypass, there's no loop around the city, you gotta go through it. The word of God is crucial for spiritual discernment. So those are the tools John offers us here to become spiritually discerning people. I pray and hope, I know that was kind of content heavy, we, we covered a lot, but I hope at least a few things jump out at you and that you will take those tools given to you by God's word and grow as a spiritually discerning man or woman so that you will be useful and grow to maturity in Christ, useful towards his purposes for you here to serve his kingdom. Let's pray, and then we'll conclude our time by worshiping the Lord in song again. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that as we examine it uh, and put ourselves under its authority, that is the key to life and joy and salvation, is to believe what you've said and then to live according to it. And so we pray that you would help us to do that. We, our response then, that we find in ourselves, Lord, having heard your word, is then to wanna just praise you. And so we offer you that now. We pray that you'd receive it, help it to be offered uh, in the strength of the spirit, in the truth of your word, and would you be pleased that your people want to praise you? You're worthy of all glory, all honor, and all praise. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.